0: I found that breathing techniques for me not only addressed those physical symptoms, but also I was able to concentrate on what I needed to do.
1: Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of 80% Mental, quite possibly the world's greatest podcast about sport and performance psychology. My name is Dr. Pete Oglishaga and I'm on a mission to try and unpack the mental aspects of sport and performance for your ears and brains to digest. We're a few episodes into series 3 now and I think it's gotten off to a pretty good start. In this series I'm switching things up a little bit and I'm trying to focus in on some specific areas of sport and performance. So far in this series, we've covered the psychology of endurance, speaking to Marathon de Saab athlete Greg Hewitt and sports psychologist Dr. Amy Whitehead. And in the last episode, I spoke to Newcastle Eagles head coach Mark Stuttel and coaching psychology expert Dr. Kristen Diefenbach about the psychology of the coach. Make sure that you head on over to 80percentmental.com or follow the podcast on Twitter at EPM Podcast or on Instagram at 80percentmental for links to both of those episodes and everything from series one and two. But I'm going for something different again for this episode in which I'm going to explore the psychology of dance. Now, I don't dance ever, apart from, I suppose, the odd occasion when there's a lot of alcohol involved. Please drink responsibly. And I think if I had to say what my favorite dance was, it's probably the safety dance. So I think it's fair to say that I'm going to need some help with this episode, and I'm delighted to be able to welcome to the podcast two wonderful guests who are going to help me explore this intriguing topic. Well, first of all, it's my pleasure to introduce Kit Holder first soloist with the Birmingham Royal Ballet. Uh, Kit's performed as a professional ballet dancer for over 20 years now, touring throughout the UK and internationally. Uh, he's also uh, choreographed professionally uh, and has a master's degree in choreography. And in addition to his uh, his work in dance, he's now somewhat marvelously uh, in the final year of a psychology undergraduate degree. Um, Kit, first of all, welcome to 80% Mental. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'd love to know what inspired you to study psychology?
0: I I came to realize uh, quite slowly, <laughs> quite relatively late in my dance career, that there was something else other than, uh, than physical ability mm-hmm. and um, the physiological side that appeared increasingly crucial to, to performance and sustaining performance. Um, and over time, there were various... Uh, examples of things that made me think yeah you know that's that's a psychological thing Mm -hmm. Um, and I just started delving deeper into that.
1: Awesome well I, I can't wait to uh unpack some of that uh, during the podcast and, and get some of your, your thoughts, the perfect guest for, uh, for this particular episode. I hope uh, so. <laughs> and, uh, and joining you is Dr. Sanna Nordin-Bates, a Professor in Sports Psychology at the Swedish School of Sport and Health Sciences, a Chartered Psychologist with the BPS, and uh, Sanna teaches Performance Psychology to athletes, coaches, dancers, uh, and teachers. Uh, Sanna, welcome to 80% Mental.
2: Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. You might want to record that one again though, because it's associate professor. Associate, I'm not full prof.
1: <laughs> what did I say? Did I say professor?
2: Yeah.
1: Do you know what? It's I'm nice done... that you
2: big me up though.
1: No, I've done that before on this podcast. <laughs> I've sort of given people honorary doctorates. Uh, just, I just sort of throw <laughs> just them. Just make it. And see what you emerge with at the end. You, you can have it, and you know, in a few years' time, it might be true anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs>
2: see how long you wait with publishing this podcast.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I just wonder if, you, before we start, if you could tell us a little bit about your life. Of, of research
2: sure so i've been focused on perfectionism and various related things for the last decade or so um and that's sometimes perfectionism and creativity so kind of nice things and sometimes uh, the other side of the coin in the sense of perfectionism as a predictor for disordered eating and other forms of ill health um often use motivation theories to help understand what goes on and why and uh yeah, I've just found that fascinating uh, and very helpful uh, in terms of understanding dance and dancers, but also um, quite practical tools, really, for uh, for helping teachers and dancers themselves. But I started researching dance straight away from, from the beginning of my PhD, because my then supervisor, Jennifer Cumming, uh, had just done a study with kids ballet company, in fact. So this is many moons ago, but um, an imagery study, Mm -hmm. I'd applied to a PhD in sport and exercise imagery. And then on day one, she said, Oh, we've just done this study with, uh, with ballet dancers. And like the questionnaire from sport doesn't seem to work very well. Do you want to focus your PhD on dance instead? And I was beyond excited because i (laughs) had done so much dance and aesthetic sport growing up. So it just felt like a wonderful fit. And then, yeah just carried on working with dancers and dance research ever since.
1: Oh, fantastic. Well again the perfect guest for uh, for this podcast and I guess come full circle uh, to be to be sat here working with uh, um, with Kit as well. So um well we will get straight into it then. So Kit I'd I'd love to know um what it was that that first attracted you to dance. Is that something that you've always done like from from a young age? <clears throat> you...
0: Um as long as I remember. Hmm. Um I am the youngest of three boys in my family. And I think we're quite lucky in that my parents had always tried to to encourage any interests that we had. And I think for my older brother, they were, were really keen that he got the opportunity to try a really wide range of things. And for some reason, dance stuck for him. Mm. Uh, my parents aren't dancers. And certainly at that point, they didn't know anything about dance at all, particularly classical ballet. Um, but they, they encouraged that, you know, they found the dance school and we were also quite lucky living close to Birmingham that we had a really good quality ballet company that would tour to Birmingham, which at that point was Sadler's as well as Royal ballet. Mm-hmm. So they would find ways to, to get tickets for those shows and, and to go. And I think by the time it came to me, it was as much anything just imitating and copying my older brothers as much as it's easy child care to take your kids <laughs> to the same the same activities which isn't to say that I wasn't encouraged to to also look at other things and you know, I played a little bit of rugby a little bit of football and I had music lessons and all the kind of usual things um but I think the influence of my brothers is really what stuck
1: yeah and I was going to say was it always ballet for you then I guess
0: uh yeah absolutely I mean during during the course of my vocational training you cover uh certainly I went to the Royal Ballet School and, and we covered quite a wide range of different types of dance there um which I have to say has been really really useful in my career uh not all ballet schools necessarily cover those things so we would do a lot of national dances I did that I loved Morris dancing <laughs> I thought that was the best thing and and we did some clog dancing and tap and contemporary dance and spanish dance and irish and scottish and you know a real wide range of of things um so but it was always yeah the predominant focus focus was very much ballet
1: um i wonder if you could tell me about the the first time that you really performed like the first time you kind of got up on stage uh what was that can you even remember that
0: well there's some evidence that i had one line in a church pantomime when i was very (laughs) young (laughs) and i don't i don't remember that at all yeah. Um so the first thing i remember was um so the ballet company that that toured to birmingham sadler's wells royal ballet when i was 8 years old moved to birmingham permanently and mm. set up home in the city and that first year they did a brand new production of the nutcracker at christmas and there are a number of children involved in the first act uh and i was fortunate enough to be one of those kids mm and i absolutely loved it it was great you know the the kind of opulence of this production but we didn't have anything like that at home you know and um and it was great being with other kids and then seeing these adults and i I don't think i necessarily felt that i was any different from them it was just the the skill level you know eight years old i thought you know these guys are only 10 years older it's not that much (laughs) and uh, and i loved it i loved the atmosphere everybody seemed like they were having so much fun um they were doing amazing things but it, it it didn't come across as work for them at least from my perspective um and i just thought great that's what i'm gonna do and i stuck to it
1: when did you make that sort of switch then from kind of enjoying it just something to do something that you got sort of fulfillment and enjoyment from to it being like a job like, this is what I'm actually gonna do now for my career.
0: Um there's an overlap, I think. Uh I think I, I decided very early on, really genuinely at about eight years old, that this is what I wanted to do, and it's never really wavered from that. I was encouraged, um, you know, very sensibly by my parents to consider the fact that it, it's not really a uh a, a guaranteed career. You know, a mm-hmm. lot of really good dance graduates never really get jobs particularly not the one that they want. Um, So I I was made, in no certain terms, very aware of that. And uh, I I did all the academic entrance exams for for the good local schools and so on. Mm -hmm. My mind was set. And that carried on. I was very, very fortunate that I got the job that I wanted. Um, And I'm still, 22 years later, grateful for that. But the, the, the enjoyment over, uh, over it, the sense of it being a job has carried on well into my career. And there's probably quite a number of years before I ever had the sense that, oh, well, this is just my job and I've just got to do it. I think mm-hmm. there must have been a point where I was really lacking in motivation or something. And then it was, oh, well, you know, this is what I'm paid to do. And most of the time, I really love my job. So, okay, there's going to be times where I don't, but I've still got to do it. I'm still being paid to do it. And there's a respect maybe for your colleagues that you've got to turn up and do it and a respect for the audience that you've got to do it. But I would say now that um, it's probably, <laughs> if we were to try and match it up, it's probably aligning with my, the sort of physical decline <laughs> that happens over okay. those 20 years, that the the instances where it's, it's challenging and feels more like a, a struggle and a job um, have increased over that time.
1: Yeah. I, I sort of asked that question as if it's like completely impossible to enjoy your job. I didn't mean that. Of course, it's possible to enjoy what, <laughs> what your job is. Um, so nice to hear that you've kind of continued with that, even though it's become a profession. Uh, I still do. Yeah.
0: I still really, really enjoy it. But um, but I've had to embrace the challenges, the increasing challenges. Yeah.
1: And uh, Sana, obviously, your, your your research and your your work as a psychologist and dance, but I, I know you have something of a background uh, in dance as well, as a performer. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I don't know if I'd stretch to performer after hearing you speak. I trained a lot of dance. I started in some kind of clap your hands and waddle in a circle at age two and a half. I, <laughs> uh, did ballet between four and sixteen, more or less, and, mm. and 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 now again since a year and a half uh and then many other styles alongside it and um you know yeah probably 10 styles of dance in, sort of in total but uh never with an intention to be a professional performer and intertwined with lots of sport i gave up dance to do uh, aesthetic sport at a high level so s- some mm-hmm. similarities there clearly but uh,
1: okay. so what was it, that then what was the sport that you did at at a high level
2: uh, equestrian vaulting was my main sport okay. and then I stopped that leaving Sweden and trampolining and sports acrobatics yeah. mostly
1: yeah All right. fantastic um so uh, again you sort of mentioned some of the, the the research but can you tell us about some of the work that you've done as a psychologist uh working with dancers we're going to get to some of the mental aspects of dance in a while but just kind of give us a brief uh, brief overview of the sorts of things that you do
2: Sure. So, um, towards the end of my PhD, so that's something like two thousand and five, uh, I was asked to start teaching on this masters in dance science. That was then at the University of Wolverhampton. So that was, uh, like, um, an academic thing, but also that got me in touch with, uh, with several people who were also working more applied, which also led to, um being recommended, I suppose, were being asked to do psychological consulting for English National Ballet and ended up doing that for four years, maybe something like that. Uh, And after a bit of that, also uh, to Royal Ballet Upper School for two or three years. So those were roughly until I moved home to Sweden at the end of 2011. Um, So, I mean, sometimes those are one on one conversations as people might imagine that a psychological consulting would be, you know, you know, in a closed room and giving advice and, and so on. And sometimes it's much more group based. Uh, so with the company, I would have like a discussion group that anyone could, um, join and pop in and out as they as they wanted and as their schedules kind of allowed, like, Oh, this week we're going to chat about perfectionism and this week we're going to chat about coping with injury and, and so on. And I would sort of throw in a few, um, they could be research results or kind of prompts or, you know, bits and pieces that I'd learned uh, from an academic world. And, and we would discuss those and people would bring their experiences. Uh, and with the school, it would be some sort of um, proper academic classes, if you will, because the student is obviously doing qualifications in dance as well, and which required certain bits of dance health. Uh, And sometimes more impromptu kind of group sessions and sometimes meet the teachers and, you know, sort of do CPD for, for dance teachers and so on. So quite varied.
1: I'm here with Dr. Sanna Norden-Bates, associate professor, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, in sports psychology, uh, and Kit Holder, first soloist with the Royal Ballet Birmingham, and we're talking about the psychology of dance. Now, Kit, you mentioned earlier on uh, there's a you know, obviously a tremendous amount of physicality in, in what you do. You need to be strong and flexible and have stamina, and... You know, this podcast is about the mental aspects of performance, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of the mental challenges um, of performing as a as a dancer. Um, And I'll sort of leave that as a really open question for you to go with uh, where where you want to.
0: Uh, Yeah, thanks. Uh, (laughs) I I think injury injury jumps out um, Mm -hmm. as as an obvious thing. I've had uh, in my own experience, I've had four uh, significant surgeries uh with various uh rehabilitation times and the the longest uh period that i had i had a a kind of an unnoticed knee injury if you like i was struggling with it we we diagnosed it as a meniscal tear and when i went in for surgery they discovered quite a significant chondral defect um in there which um was repaired, was micro fractured, but I was unaware of that. I'd given permission. I said, look, I'm a dancer. I've been dancing for 10 years. If there's anything else that needs doing, you know, I'd given all those permissions, go ahead and do it. And, um, our clinical director was also there. So he, he would have presumably advised as well at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I came around after the anesthetic, I came to discover that my layoff was going to be significantly longer. Um, than I'd anticipated. I'd anticipated a couple of weeks and we were then talking anything from 9 to 18 months. Wow. Um, so there was a uh, there was a psychological challenge first in coming to terms with that and then going, okay, so this injury was more severe than we realized. What are the implications of that? Um, we're talking about recovery timelines but also to what extent will I recover? And um, you know, will I be back where I was before? Maybe I could be better than I was before. Maybe this thing was hampering me. So I was all of those things turning around in my head. Um, but, uh, during the, during that rehab period, I was put in touch with, um, a psychologist, Britt Taj Foxall, who, at, you know, at the time I thought, well, I don't, I'm kind of feeling good about this I don't really see the the need for a psychologist that classic thing that there must be something wrong you know um and we had a great conversation and it was um it was more about educating me with strategies that I either um, might find useful just then or that she recognized would be useful strategies for me to have in my locker (laughs) going forwards Mm -hmm. Um, and that really pricked an interest for me um, so there's that side of, of challenges that dancers will all experience at some point. Everybody gets injured, right? Yeah, I was going to um, say, I
1: suppose it's a fairly common thing. Yeah. And it's, it's
0: great to hear um, that Sana had spent some time working at the Royal Ballet School because during my time, that didn't happen at all. You know, I'm much older than that, but it, it didn't happen at all. And some of the things that I've come across in my own studies and reading I really wish I could have been educated with that during my education um and it's it's been a bit of a frustration to me that some of those things I've had to discover through my own experience when it would have been so easy you know I mean it's like an hour session three times a, a year could have put a lot of those things in place for me that I then would have I would have had that in my arsenal for my career um the other challenges are things like it's a grueling profession so so motivation can be at times a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, I think f- it's been interesting for me over over two decades to look at where the sources of my motivation have come from and how that's shifted over that time. Um, and from kind of a, 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 an external demand to, a, to an internal discipline almost, that's been yeah. really interesting. Um, and of course, it's fluctuated in either direction on any given day. Um, but that, but that certainly can be a challenge. And, you know, I spent a long, long time in the corps de ballet. That's the, the group, the chorus, the, you know, the, the people that stand at the back and hold a spear. I <laughs> was effectively employed as a, as a corps de ballet dancer for 14 years, mm-hmm. which is a long time. Um, and I'm not going to pretend that I loved every second of that. I didn't. That's challenging. You know, you're watching, um, friends, colleagues, dancers that are much younger than you taking the spotlight, doing amazing things. Um, and your careers, you know, kind of feeling like it's quite slow. That's definitely a challenge. So looking, um, looking at where's my motivation to do this mm. in those moments um, was occasionally challenging. Um, I think the only other area for me that, that stands out where I've found, I'm looking at this from a perspective of now having, um, obviously compared to yourselves and some of your other listeners, nowhere near the expert knowledge, but but an increasing knowledge about psychology. The, other, the area that I found something that's really benefited me is uh, in terms of the kind of skill acquisition and learning okay. side of things. I feel that I'm a relatively slow learner when it comes to learning choreography. Um, some people can watch something, and then recreate it, mm. or uh, we do a lot of learning from video, um, particularly as a kind of homework, just to try and get ahead. And I, I'm, I find that really difficult. I'm very very slow. My wife is also a dancer. She's one of our top dancers. She can watch a video and she knows the the choreography. Uh, it would be difficult if we had to learn from a video at the same time. She'd be pretty frustrated <laughs> with my pace. I think. Yeah. Um, so, I've uh, I've found. Even things like visualization um as a as a tool for obviously not so much learning but for solidifying that learning and going back to what I was saying earlier, if I had been just given that information when I was in school, it's so easy to explain that process to somebody but it, but in my era it didn't happen and um it wouldn't have it wouldn't have given me a career as a principal dancer, but I might have been a little bit quicker <laughs> for sure. <laughs>
1: Uh, Sana, you've been listening to, uh, to Kit there describing some of the mental challenges. From, from your perspective as a psychologist, you know what, what do you think are some of the, the challenges? What regularly comes up with uh, dancers that you work with or some of the conversations that you have?
2: Yeah, so certainly I agree with all the things that Kit has said. I mean, injuries happen. We know the injury rate in high-level dancers is something like at least one injury for about 80% of dancers every year. So that's a lot. Mm. <laughs> Not all of them severe, with you know months of rehab, of course. But nonetheless, um, fear of re-injury is a big deal uh, towards the latter stages of that and the sort of early stages of coming back. Um, there is a reason I research perfectionism. <laughs> I see that quite a bit in its various guises from the dancers who are doing well with it at the time and have it as a almost a source of pride as you know, like they wear it like a badge of honor. Mm. I'm a perfectionist, you know, hence I have what it takes, you know, almost like that classic thing that people say in job interviews when they get asked, like, what are your main weaknesses, like it's a politically (laughs) correct way of saying, look at me, I work hard, like I'm really driven Um, through to the negative sides in terms of the self critique, they're never being satisfied. They're never feeling good enough and and therefore not really letting themselves rest or even be pleased for a moment. Um, especially when it comes to ballet, less so perhaps with other styles. Um, I see a lot of issues around low autonomy, uh, because of the traditional structure of how things are set up in classical ballet. There, There is a lot of top down decisions that are not necessarily explained, um, Feel free to jump in, Kate, if you want to <laughs> agree or disagree with those.
0: It's really great to hear you say it because one of the things that interested me most, um, really early on in my own studies, uh, self-determination theory and, and the importance of autonomy within that, and I've been struggling since to, to look at how can we increase that sense of autonomy in our environment. I just, mm. I just, I really struggled with it, and I've spoken to. Um, various sports coaches as well you know what does aut- autonomy look like in your environment and although it, it, people often struggle to to answer that question immediately I've had several follow-up replies on email saying oh well you know we try to do this and our athletes or our players can do this and they can request this and we talk to them about this planning um, but I've, I've yet to really get my finger on how we do that better mm. in dance so perhaps that's a conversation for Sana and I another time.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I can pick it up a little bit now in that sometimes it's autonomy in the moment, right? Like within the structure of an existing ballet class that perhaps can't be changed then and there. You know, it can be as simple as giving options for how they want to finish the phrase, right? Or just listening in with the dancers of going, you know, how are you feeling today? I know it was a really intense rehearsal yesterday. So should we focus on this or on that? that that's giving autonomy just in the sense of, you know, allowing some individuality and like, look, I am here to gear your training around you rather than pushing you into the mold that I'd already kind of decided was happening today. Um, in choreography, it's more obvious, of course. So I think the, the fact that things are changing in a lot of companies, parts of the world and so on, where there is a lot of co-creating with choreographers for the people who have those sorts of roles, admittedly, not everyone necessarily, but you know, there is a lot of autonomy there. And then it's sometimes about equipping people with the tools and the confidence to embrace it. Because especially if you're brought up with very low autonomy for years and years, and you're expected to, to do as you're told, um, essentially, then then it can be really scary to suddenly be like asked to improvise in front of some famous choreographer who's showing up, right? So... So there, um, it can almost be overwhelming. But but some people, of course, love it, right? And and take every chance to to create and do the choreographic challenges at school or uh, you know live it out in the contemporary class or whatever it is. But I mean, more from a structural point of view. They're different people, right? <laughs> who need to embrace and make those kind of structural changes because a dancer can't change the structure of the company or, or the nature of the class. And sometimes not even the teacher feels able to do that, even though they're the ones who are kind of issuing the
1: mm-hmm. uh,
2: instructions. So, so I think it's at different levels. So I think there's a lot to be done, but I think there is also change happening. It's slow, but I see so many people commenting on it who have that frustration that you express, uh, who do tend to study in various ways or who are absolutely dead set to be like, I'm not going to do this when it's my time to be a teacher or, um, or a leader of some sort. So, uh, So I hold out hope. yeah and sometimes it's great with the with the sport contrasts so uh an ex-student of mine now a friend who is an ultramarathon runner when we were discussing (laughs) this issue at one point she was like oh my god they don't even make their own training schedule (laughs) they don't even choose their own coach (laughs) so sometimes just having those um complete external views is really refreshing and kind of Mm
1: -hmm.
2: yeah gives them more of a zoomed out perspective on what might be possible or how things can also be done rather than stick to uh, how it's always been but that's a really long answer
1: no we, we like really long <laughs> answers detailed answers <laughs> but um, it, it's interesting because you know one of the classes that i teach um in uh, on my course uh, we explore different high performance environments one of the sports psychology classes. So we look at things like medicine, and we look at things like business, uh, emergency first responders, and so on and so forth, as well, obviously, as high-performance sport. Um, There's there's kind of an image that we all have in our heads about ballet uh, and about kind of the strict training, this ruthless, sort of really harsh environment and sort of perpetuated by the media and the films that we see about it. But, uh, you know, listening to you speak, then I just wonder how much of that is actually accurate because it seems like it is an environment to sort of fairly low autonomy. Um, yeah. How, how much of that is kind of, you know, real?
0: Um, I I don't want to speak with any real knowledge about training now because it's, you know, more than two decades since I was uh, in mm-hmm. training myself. Um, what I would say in, in relation to portrayals in the media, uh, films like Billy Elliot, fantastic film, um I have to say, not too far from my experience mm-hmm. at all. I didn't feel when I saw that 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 uh, it was exaggerated for dramatic effect, necessarily that yeah. that resonated as being quite accurate for me. Um, i I suspect that they did some very, very good research on on my particular training environment, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I do think things have changed. Uh, which is, of course, uh, progress. It's described only as progress. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we are, we are probably some way behind other high-performance training environments um, in, in a lot of areas. Uh, I, I do appreciate that there's progress in the psychological content of, of what dance students are educated with now uh but uh, clearly there's really some way to go you know um and that that holistic approach is is broadening and encompassing more facets of of or equipping students with more more skills and tools for the career that they're actually going to have Mm -hmm. i think one of the one of the ways of looking at it perhaps, is that in my generation, we were trained as if we were going to be top star principal dancers. Um, That was very much the focus and also in in that era, very much geared towards being in a Royal Ballet company, whether that's at Covent Garden in London or or in Birmingham. Now, I think they accept a lot more that, that in the Royal Ballet School, for example, their students may not even be ballet dancers necessarily. And that's also reflected in the fact that nobody in a ballet company now is only a ballet dancer. You know, the, the kind of styles that we're required to dance is much more varied, I think, across the ballet world than it necessarily was in the past. But also in the training environment, it's recognized that people might go off on a different route. Uh, and I think that's very healthy. Um, But beyond that as well, there's also, I think, a recognition that although the remit of the school is to train dancers, and I'm talking here generally about the the various vocational schools, uh, although their remit is to train dancers, there's a recognition that actually employment rates aren't very high (laughs) and that the the students need to be prepared for that and they need to also be ready for the world outside of dance or, or in different related disciplines
1: so uh, it's quite interesting because you know Sunny, you said you work with dance teachers as well so what's your take on that this idea of preparing perhaps these dancers these athletes for uh, a life that yeah. Doesn't necessarily take them in that direction because again we see that in sport, don't we? We see people fall out of sport at age sort of sixteen, seventeen, and because their identity is wrapped up in uh, that, you know, athleticism, their athletic identity, all of a sudden everything's gone. Is is there a, a more work in preparing dancers for that, as as Kit's talking about?
2: I think. I mean, I want to say first that I meet a lot of fantastic people, including a lot of fantastic teachers who absolutely want the best for the dancers that they meet and oh, who
1: course,
2: yeah. read everything and go to CPD seminars and who are so engaged and such lovely people. Um, so that exists for sure. Uh, I think things have changed. I mean, along with society changing will be sort of slower. Um but I will also say that sometimes because I sort of work with these issues on a daily basis, I, I will sort of – sometimes if we write things about, say, autonomy being thwarted or something, I go, oh, is this really true anymore? <laughs> and then another scandal breaks in the media. Yeah. You know? I mean, we've had so many scandals, just like in sport, but specifically in the dance and the ballet world, just in the last year, you know, which are absolutely shocking and speak to all of the things that are – you know, that you mentioned at the start with regards to all kinds of abuse and really horrendous teaching methods. So then I sort of have a reality check and go, yeah, it does still exist. So I think it's just that everything coexists, but I believe in a general um, rate of progress for the oh, average. That's
1: so. trend, right?
2: <laughs> mm, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's certainly, like what Kit was saying, in terms of a lot, a lot of recognition that there are many ways that a career can go. And because um, even classical dancers need to do contemporary work, yeah, I mean, I don't think any ballet school does not do contemporary classes, for example. So so with regards to that, that certainly has, has moved in. And several schools, I, I don't know about many and several companies, again, I don't know about many, but would have... Um, support like on the sides that's different to what it was uh, a number of years ago i mean originally of course there were no health staff at all and then the first thing that anyone would get would be one physio Uh, and now i mean maybe kit you can comment on the on the range of staff that a company like yours would have um,
0: well i i think it's important as well to make a distinction first of all that we are a relatively large company and we're very um we're very well supported by the arts council We're very grateful for that. Not as many companies, not so many companies have the kind of resources that we have. So there are challenges there. Um, And it's not unusual to find a a reasonable sized dance company that doesn't employ their own physiotherapist, for example. Now, they would at least hopefully have a a regular professional that they can coordinate and get their dancers seen quite quickly. But it may not be a, a member of staff for them. At Birmingham Royal Ballet, we have a dedicated facility um, where we employ three full-time physiotherapists. We have a clinical director, a massage therapist. We have access to Pilates and strength and conditioning. Um, we don't employ a psychologist, um, but we would have access to, should that be, be deemed necessary. So as a, a, a kind of gateway to other disciplines that we, we don't have in-house, those things can be signposted there, which is very, very helpful. And the most um, brilliant practical aspect of that is that it's in the same building as our studio base. So if I have a break in the day, I can be in there doing some additional training um, or, or, you know, having some massage or anything that I need. Uh, and the a kind of byproduct of that and something that I think we are quite good at in Birmingham is the education side of that. So we've got dancers in there and we can offer them workshops about um, sleep hygiene, for example, or nutrition, or is it, we can provide that for the company, which I think is, um, it's a real luxury to have that. And, you know, that, that feeds through into everybody's professional practice and hopefully uh, makes us better dancers, which at the end of the day is what it's all about. But if we can be, uh, we can be healthier, dancers physically and and mentally then we'll perform at a higher level and I think a a facility like we have there has a real opportunity to have a a huge influence there Um, and to to show dancers that it's so much more than what you do in the studio alone you know that is that's a a, obviously a huge part of it but it's um, it's necessary to support that from other angles to, to really get the best out of your dancing
2: the thing is, even though uh, the BRB sort of health suite and everything, like it is amazing. And obviously it's great that there is the signposting to, to additional services. I still think it's, uh, you know, there's a real emphasis on, on physical aspects, like both for preventive and for uh, remedial kind of work. So I guess as soon as the psych aspects are out of the house, you know, the, the chances are that they're less seen, it's less obvious, it's less accessible, and perhaps the educational side that you said you were missing in your training are less likely to exist as well for that same reason. So, yeah, this is uh, sort of, it's it's very cool, but it's,
0: yeah. And it's interesting, um, I think, because I, I have an interest, you know, I'm a, a psychology student, and many of my colleagues are aware of that, that I do... I am able to identify an interest and a a, a a need for that kind of support, and what happens? And I'm in no way being critical of um, of our healthcare team here, because it's you know it's it's not something that they're at fault for in any way. But I do have dancers coming to me to ask for psychological support, and I'm not able to offer that. I'm a student. I'm an undergrad student. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I all I can do is reinforce. Yeah, I think, you know, if this is something that you feel might help you, go and find mm-hmm. someone, talk, talk to our clinical team and get them to put you in touch with someone because clearly you feel there's a benefit from it. And certainly if you feel there's a benefit, you will benefit from that, you know. And then uh, perhaps, I don't know how you feel about that, Sana, but perhaps uh, that's the beginning of a bit of a cultural shift. Um, where if you can get the people that have identified their own interest or, or, or need for support, you're getting closer to the people who maybe haven't self-identified as, as needing that support um, and normalising it. And, of course, there's still stigmas around that. That's that's ongoing education needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but perhaps then you can get closer to the people that perhaps don't realise that they could benefit.
2: Yeah. But I think it's, it's important with what you say as well that, just like it's very different with let's teach dance students how to eat healthy and treating an eating disorder, those are very different tasks, jobs, and, and problems. It is also very different to be like, Oh, let's have you know strength and conditioning to prepare for the season ahead and uh, working with an existing injury. Like, we all see that those are different things, but sometimes with psychology, the stigma of oh, I'm addressing a, a deep seated psychological issue like the fear of that sort of spreads into there not even being the preventive skill building. Uh, and and that's like a, a huge task. And I mean, great that you can uh, contribute uh, in that regard, with regards to the answers that you gave and the encouragement. Yeah.
0: What it does is it, it continually inspires me to go, you know, this is an area that I really would like to get into because I can see it, you know, and I, and I think I'm, I'm well-placed to maybe understand the context that, uh, that dancers might be experiencing the, the, the dance specific sides of, of any particular psychological need. Um, and it, it, it does make me want to be able to provide some kind of support. So just going back to what we are saying about motivation, my motivation for studying psychology has never wavered <laughs> mm. <laughs> because I, I can, I can see that, um, there's a need for that
1: this is 80% mental and I'm here with Kit Holder and Dr. Sana Norden-Bates and we're talking about the psychology of dance uh, if you are enjoying the conversation don't forget you can listen to uh, all of our other episodes uh, and subscribe at 80%mental.com you can follow us on Twitter at EPM Podcast or on Instagram at 80% Mental, all words. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, are you a dancer? Uh, is psychology something that's important to you? What are some of your mental uh, skills that you that you fall back on? Um, I want to come back to something that you talked about earlier. Uh, I think both of you mentioned this as well. You talked about perfectionism uh, in, in, in dance. And I wonder, you know... W- What's the line, or is there even a line between perfectionism and sort of spilling over into obsession? And how do you how do you walk that line, um, Kit? I'll come to you first as the uh, as the <laughs> dancer, and then and then will kind of get your perspective as the psychologist. What, uh, what do we think about that?
0: I was really hoping that you would go to Sano on that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and also, I should just drop in that my wife did her her master's as a, a comparative study in elements of perfectionism between professional ballet dancers and elite gymnasts. Okay. So I feel very much the, the um, novice in this <laughs> in this topic. Um, I want to pick up on something Sana said earlier, that, that people use, they wear perfectionism as a badge of honor. Um, mm-hmm. And there's no kind of acknowledgement to the, the risks and the, the potential Uh, dangers of perfectionism there now there's a difference I think between aspiring to perfection and realising that perfection is not achievable Um, and yes I think a lot of dancers do uh, obsess over details that they would deem necessary for them to perceive their performance as perfect and i can tell you that in 22 years of professional dance i have never given a perfect performance whether that's in the studio or in in rehearsal never um, so the measures by which i would uh, determine whether a performance was good or if i was satisfied with it um are more valuable to me than whether or not I, I hit this impossible threshold of, of being perfect. Um, and those are much more things like, did I enjoy it? Did I stay on my feet rather than falling on my backside, <laughs> which has happened, right? Um, and I'm, you know, perhaps the performances where I fell on my backside in the future when I've no longer got the opportunity to dance like that anymore, they might be my favorite shows. Yeah. Um, but but the, the performances that I think are, are highlights and are my best performances, the ones where I felt I could say my performance was excellent, are very few, very, very few. And this is at a point in my career where I've danced over 3,000 performances. Um, I'm at peace with that completely. Because I, I, I feel like I have given everything that I can to those performances I have paid attention to details I have worked hard you know in the later parts of my career I've used the additional skills the visualization and so on that, that I could apply um, and I'm content that that I've done everything. I'm also comfortable with my limitations. There are uh, dancers whose physical attributes enable them to do things that I would never have been able to do. Um, And I think part of it in dance is the aesthetic. People always want longer legs, um, differently shaped legs, more bendy feet, higher legs and more bendy back, longer arms, the list is endless. And these are things that beyond you know, a a little bit of training and technique are unachievable. Mm. And there is simply no point. If, if anything, if I was going to give practical advice to a dancer, it would be okay. So your your hip rotation limits your turnout. How are we going to deal with that? It is what it is, and and within the the boundaries of correct technique in dance, how can we get away with that? Acknowledge the limitation. I know um, professional ballerinas, so you know uh, extreme. rotation turnout is desirable in dance I know top top ballerinas who just don't have even average and you have no idea because they're so smart in the way that they work that you're even as a um, even as a expert in dance you don't spot that because you're so busy going oh well their their movement quality is incredible and their line is still fantastic but dancers will obsess over that detail and sana uh, i'm going to hand over to you with the question that with the prompt do dancers in your experience when you're looking at perfectionism obsess over their limitations limitations
2: completely i mean to varying extents obviously and i would say huge generalization and you know based on the limits of my knowledge and exposure and so on, uh, more women than men, more girls than boys. And I mean, seeing from a general population in general, you know, unfortunately girls and women have lower self-esteem for example, than, than men and boys. So, uh, and with certain forms of mental illness, it's higher in uh, men, uh, women and girls than in men and boys. So, so it might be related to that. Um, you know, more underlying kind of vulnerabilities. But I think for ballet, there is also much more competition among girls because there are more of them in training. So boys get away with more, (laughs) right? They feel more valued sometimes because they might be the only one or one of only a handful in their class so like they get the solos or they get things kind of shaped a bit more after them because you do need a prince right we might have 16 princesses but we only have one (laughs) prince so let's look after him so i think that contributes as well because of that kind of increased competition and the demands then sort of become higher but intriguingly I don't know anyone who would go to a ballet performance and go, wow, the women are so much better than the men. Right? (laughs) No one would go, oh, ballet would be better if the men were out there crap compared to the girls. So we still see like amazing skills and amazing artistry, both from men and women. So what was the point of all that competition and extra pressure? I don't think that it, does us any good really um yeah comparison rarely does right so so yeah that was sort of one angle of it um in terms of your question pete in terms of obsessing yes there is an overlap uh, even with ocd symptoms Mm -hmm. occasionally when it goes sort of too far Uh, To what extent that's personality and what the person is like and therefore they were attracted to and stayed with ballet and to what extent it's kind of reinforced and taught in the environment, I guess we'll never know, right? (laughs) Probably a bit of both. Um, Certainly people who are uh, super laid back and and sloppy often don't get recommended, like, oh, you'd really suit ballet, you should really go there. (laughs) So (laughs) there is a certain amount of... um, self-selection sometimes but also like what parents put their kids into because they think it suits them Mm. so so with that would speak to a personality aspect perhaps but um in an environment that reinforces never being pleased or that it could always be better or that you must polish and you must do this thing 32 times in a row I think it's reinforced as well uh, sometimes to people's detriment so I think the people who are somewhat perfectionistic or just want to strive for excellence actually in quite a healthy way they can manage to do it well if they can get that kind of zoomed out view not get too enmeshed in everything so like the critique is not of me as a person it's actually just how I did that turn. can I be fine with like oh he just said that okay, I'll just work on my turns rather than really swallow it in and feel inadequate. That makes a huge difference yeah. um, to whether the person's even able to like go home and have a nice evening off um, and be able to kind of sleep properly and you know come back with more energy tomorrow. So,
1: yeah, and it's tough, yeah. isn't it? Because we have that sort of innate negativity bias anyway, don't we? So in an environment where you're essentially constantly being critiqued, hmm. that's going to hit hard, I suppose.
2: Yeah, completely. And especially if then there's some sort of ideal that that is what it takes. Hmm. And, and I think it probably is what it takes to, to work hard and to want to work hard. But I don't think that being dissatisfied is a great driving force, really. Like, I mean, ideally, you'd be pleased with the show and then be like, oh, but I'd still like to make it a bit better. Or I wonder how I could add this extra aspect. How far could I go? So that it's actually like an intrinsic motivation and a curiosity that kind of drives the next day rather than at least I'm not as bad as yesterday or (laughs) something,
1: yeah. Yeah. A a thoughtful criticism rather than just a criticism, right? Um, So uh, we're kind of veering in this direction anyway. Um, What sort of things might go into preparing dancer then as a a psychologist working in this field what sort of things would go into preparing a dancer for the rigors of training and for for performance as well
2: I think you can answer that in two different ways more and less flattering towards the dance community (laughs) because you could say kind of nothing right if they're not getting any psychological skills training etc they just um, you know just go to class and hope for the best but uh, on the other hand I don't think we should forego we should recognize that there's a lot of psychological aspects in any training the the language that a teacher is using i mean just as a baseline is it kind is it clear is it helpful i mean that's gonna boost a dancer psychologically even if no one has any psychological training or awareness right Mm. like a physio after an injury would probably work with a goal setting program that's going to help the dancer if they are good at doing that. They may not call that a psychological skill; they might just call it planning, right? right. So I think there is a lot of good stuff that goes on, but we don't label it psychology. Um, otherwise, in the more sort of explicit, typical sports psych way, obviously, Kit's given some examples of imagery in terms of going through things for learning, for memorizing, and uh, and for other aspects. Um, a key key thing that i keep coming back to is the importance of focusing on yourself so like a task orientation or a process focus over how high is her leg or what does he think of me or what's the outcome going to be so to actually really know what is my constructive focus in this moment and it could just be a correction or an instruction from a teacher but more often than not i find that it's artistic so um I'm going to pass that ball to you in a second there, Kit, but especially for the perfectionistic dancers and those who get very caught up in in negativity or or sort of limitations, it's often about technique. But if they can learn to kind of get immersed and get help from a teacher or a choreographer or just from the piece itself to kind of go, actually what I want to do with this is express that emotion or point in this direction and all my attention can go into that artistic aim then i can lose myself a little bit and really kind of be lost in the work and usually all for the better
0: um i I hundred percent agree that uh, that a lot of the the stress for a dancer comes from that comparing to other people comparing to your colleagues and i think uh there's this this ideal that's perpetuated in in the corps de ballet that everyone needs to look identical they need to now obviously you need to do the the correct choreography with the correct timing with the music and the correct position on the stage and all of this but but it does lead to us going as you said oh that dancer's leg is higher than mine their foot is pointed better than mine um they're jumping higher than me or, or all of those things uh and it's hard, I think, to break away from that, but maintain the skill of of being perfectly in sync as a group of dancers, yeah. um, because it's built into it that you have, we, you know, we stand in front of a mirror, usually on at least two sides of the studio all day. Um, and we use that to compare and to to judge ourselves all day. <laughs> and that's in conjunction with having somebody sat at the front of the studio, telling you what you're not doing right or what you're not doing well enough and if you're lucky in the place that you're you're dancing that person or people will also be telling you what you're doing well um, but you know to make progress we have to identify the things that aren't there yet so the, we're, we're getting it from all angles as dancers and it's only usually when you're you're a little bit further into your career um, and you're progressing through those ranks maybe and you're being given the opportunity to dance solo roles where you have the opportunity to maybe make those small adjustments uh you know hopefully maintaining choreographic integrity but where you can make those small adjustments just to accom- um, accom- accommodate your uh, abilities or, or the areas where you're perhaps less capable in certain things uh, but it is a challenge and especially i think for young dancers that are finding their way in the career uh to to accept They're just not going to do those things as well as somebody else, and they're going to have to stand next to them and do it.
2: I also don't know if there's we have any research on it yet. There's probably some in like other domains, but the comparison that's become possible uh, via social media uh, apps and videos in the last few years—I mean, it must just be exaggerating it so many times because before, you know, you were comparing to the people in your studio right you had some hope there <laughs> and then maybe if you move to more advanced uh, classes levels cities whatever then you know yeah maybe the comparison kind of got harsher but still relatively small pond right when you're suddenly comparing to the rest of the world and maybe even in enhanced videos that are really kind of cut down yeah i don't know what it's doing to people but it's not looking pretty
0: it's a problem i i really think it's a huge problem um because it's, it's an edited view, you know, and it's a snapshot. And it's somebody doing, um, let's say, someone's doing 15 pirouettes. Great. Now, I, I, it's quite common now that people genuinely can do that. But you're not seeing all the times where it didn't work, right, where they didn't finish it nicely and make it look easy. Um, and that's the same for any, any trick. You're not seeing beyond that, and more importantly, Can this person convincingly play the role of a prince or a beggar or whatever? Can they do that? Or can they just turn lots and it's really nice? Can they do anything else? Can this person jump? Can this person um, work with another dancer and and partner them beautifully and safely? There's so much more to a dancer. And it it also, um, it extends to all aspects of dance. You know, you'll have people posting teaching videos with a bit of advice. And that advice might be really good, sound, helpful advice. But beyond that, are they a good teacher because of that? You know, can they actually sustain a class and uh, train their students proficiently and healthily? Who knows? But, but people are building reputations and, um, and are attracting employment opportunities based on a profile that's built through social media. Yeah. And uh, and the risk, of course, is that they can't back it up, and I I find that problematic. And the the flip side of that is that the 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 kind of business savvy people in the dance know that these people have thousands or even millions of followers, and if you can get them on your stage, you're going to attract an audience. Yeah. And I, I of course I'm not going to name names, but we've seen that we've seen that in the dance world where somebody will do a guest performance because they've got, you know, however many followers on Instagram and, uh, it's not as good as you might've been led to believe necessarily, mm. but they sold a, a, a load of tickets. So who knows?
1: <laughs> so, so what are your, uh, What are your sort of go-to mental strategies, skills? You you mentioned imagery a little bit earlier on, Kit. Um, What are the things that you sort of routinely fall back on?
0: Um, I have uh, one of the things, probably the single most valuable thing that I've taken for my own professional practice uh, is breathing techniques, actually. Um, It's less common now that I, I have um really pronounced somatic anxiety but that's the thing that that i find that you know um we're all going to get that kind of nervousness and, and performance anxiety whether that's in in a rehearsal or a performance environment uh and i think we're getting better at acknowledging that that is necessary to some extent but it's certainly normal um And it was one of the things that interested me actually about getting into studying psychology in the first place was just observing how different dancers appeared to be managing that before a performance. You know, some people would kind of shut themselves off and they'd have that face that just kind of says, don't talk to me, getting in the zone. Um, And they'll be on stage, you know, in a corner going through their choreography and or warming up with their headphones on, whereas other people would be laughing and joking around the stage and maybe that was their way of sort of um, distracting from Mm. it. But I thought, you know, I recognize that there's lots of different ways and I had tried lots of different ways. If I was laughing and joking around on the stage for a role that, that was important and, and pressure, high pressure enough for me to feel that anxiety, I didn't feel that that helped me. I've also tried, um, you know, having a playlist of music to pump me up and, that didn't work. That made things worse for me actually. Um, because it just added to this sense of occasion and this sense, oh, you know, this is something big. Um, but I found that the breathing techniques for me not only addressed those physical symptoms, but also acknowledged uh that this was a big deal for me in a help w- in a in a helpful way that I felt that was a constructive thing. Um and I was enabled I was able to focus you know to to really get my brain in gear and to concentrate on what I needed to do Um, I felt that it was physically facilitative to use those breathing strategies um, as well as you know helping to to address the the kind of butterfly stomach and heart rate and so on Um, that's that's just been huge for me and it's one of my frustrations that I could have had that much earlier on <laughs> in my career, you know. And actually, um, in fairness, I should name check and acknowledge my mum here, who very early on, uh, if I was doing a dance exam or something, um, as long as I can remember, would, I don't know whether I would say, oh, I'm nervous, I'm terrified, I don't want to do it, or whatever, um, she would identify that. And she has always said to me, three deep breaths, and a quick prey, so that's actually been there from the beginning. But I think that I I never really uh, brought that across into professional life. You know, I think that was that was more like a a home life thing. <laughs> and you know, I should have listened to my mum. That's kind of the mm-hmm. the takeaway from that. She was right all along. Um, so th- amongst all the other the skills and tools, that's that's the one that I think I've I've really found useful and, and regretted not employing earlier yeah
1: shout out to the mums out there and the dads because <laughs> I, used, I used to get pep talks before uh doing exams or driving tests or anything like that I would always have a pep talk uh, it was kind of kind of tradition so yeah shout out to the parents out there um Okay, so this is 80% Mental and I'm here with Dr. Sana Norden-Bates, Associate Professor of Sports Psychology and Kit Holder, First Soloist with the Royal Ballet Birmingham. And we've had uh, such an intriguing discussion around the psychology of dance um, and I I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, I I have a couple of more questions before we we wrap things up though. Um, I'm really interested, Kit, in the creative elements of dance and it might be that I amend this question slightly based on what we talked about a little bit earlier on with kind of the the, the sort of low autonomy environment, but sport in a lot of ways is very much constrained by rules, really specific rules. I guess, perhaps in in some of the more aesthetic sports like diving, like gymnastics and such, maybe there's perhaps more creativity allowed, but it's still within a a real sort of uh, constrained set of rules and I wonder you know that does does dance allow more creative expression and I guess it's, it's more it's more than just what's the motivation it's what is it that you're expressing expressing what is it that you're expressing what does that expression really allow in dance that's kind of a real sort of deep complicated question I don't know how you want to how you want to take that
0: um so I'm I'm quite fortunate that During my career, I've been on on both sides of creations where I've worked with choreographers and trying to um, get to what it is that they're driving at and what they want to to happen on the stage, what they want to express and convey, Um, and I've created my own work. Um, So I'm quite lucky that I can speak from both sides of that a little bit. Mm. Um, One of the things that I found very, very interesting is when you're working in narrative work and you're telling a particular story. So for example, um, about 12 years ago or so, we created um, a new production of Cinderella. Now everybody knows the story of Cinderella um, and the choreographer was Sir David Bintley. He's renowned for being fantastic at creating narrative work particularly. so that was a question of getting inside his vision of how, um, how is this prince going to behave? How are um, the ugly sisters going to be? What actually are their characters? Are they comedic? Are they really outright nasty? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think initially my role in that was a frog and I had a huge, you couldn't see my face at all. I had a huge um, like beach ball sized frog head um, <laughs> so the challenge there is, well, without the face, how do you? and The costume was quite big, as well. It has to be said. So how do I use my movement to to do anything? Actually, first of all, but but then, what is that? Is that funny? Is that cute? Um, and, and what's the role within the narrative? So mm. the process in the studio for those kind of things has always been, okay, well, what's the audience going to take away, and how do we how do we show that consistently? Um, and then by extension of that we with most of the shows that we do will tour those shows for weeks on end different venues so most roles will be performed by different dancers Uh, you know there'll be two or three different rotations of cast um, and there has to be consistency across those now as a dancer i've found that the most rewarding aspect uh, of, of performing is where do you add your individuality to that but Um, still do all the the required things of telling the story and and the technical side of it, but, you know, maintaining that consistency across casting. If the show is not a narrative show and there's not um, a story to tell, you don't have a character with a defined set of characteristics and personality to convey, that's often more interesting. And that abstract side uh, is for me one of the most beautiful things that you can get in ballet because there's something that's really hard to put your finger on why does it move an audience why does it captivate an audience or or not it has to be said why why is an audience left cold by this particular thing because you can have dancers on stage doing the most amazing things physically but if there isn't um, an emotional response in the audience as well it doesn't sustain their attention for very long I think you know then they then they can go and watch sport or go and watch gymnastics you know where people are doing equally if not more incredible things with their body that's it's the emotional content and communication and expression that that sustains dance as an art form um and if somebody could answer how that happens and how you do that uh, I'd be very pleased to know their answer because <laughs> it would it would make um, make a lot of people's jobs much much easier um and it's also subjective you know what what one person in the audience finds beautiful and stunning and incredibly moving will leave another person entirely cold um, and that's nothing necessarily to do with their familiarity with the requirements or or, or knowledge of dance um it's just human nature it's just subjective um so that for me uh, i think is is the the goal that's the endeavor that we all have is to to really emotionally connect with an audience whether you're the person that's trying to to choreograph it or perform it
1: sana uh, i just can come to you for a second working as a psychologist in dance working with dancers what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned as a psychologist
2: Mm. I mean, linking in a bit with, with the theme that Kit was speaking on most recently, so so creativity and, and what makes art good art or engaging for, for both the performer and the audience. Uh, I think I've learned a lot over the years. I, I don't think I knew hardly anything about it when I started out. <laughs> uh, and in learning more about it, I find that it's... It's both possible to be more effective, perhaps as a consultant or as a teacher towards dancers so that dance psychology is slightly different to sports psychology in that way. Um, and I think it's also, I mean, it links together a number of themes like flow and absorption, uh, that possibility to be really immersed in an experience is obviously, uh, part of where we want to go with, uh, with creative work. Mm. Um, links with intrinsic motivation and that, you know, makes it all the more important to strengthen intrinsic motivation, which makes it all the more problematic when uh, environments are low in autonomy support, because we need that to support the motivation and the creativity and so on. And it links in with that attentional focus aspect that I said earlier on. So while like a task orientation in sport, for example, might be, um, you know, focus on you and your technical performance or your interaction with your teammates or something like that. Uh, It could in dance be that, you know, projecting or communicating or, um, imagining or, or something like that. And I think that's been a real journey and, and really fascinating. And, And I guess as with many things, um, the more you learn, the more things hang together. Um, which means that if people um, have a question or, or perhaps a problem, it may be that, but it may also be something underpinning it. So like, let's say someone is very anxious, for example. It's not necessarily that we need to work with anxiety-reducing strategies because it might just be a symptom of something else. Like Maybe it is their perfectionism that we need to work with. Maybe they actually just need to change environment because it's frankly not healthy for them. And then there is no problem anymore. Or like there might be a CBT uh, slash mindfulness approach that again, links in with what Kit said about breathing techniques earlier on that only when I properly got into those literatures and and practices, did I see actually, we don't always need to reduce anxiety. I think certainly from my early sports psych um, learning, those books were often about, okay, anxiety is a problem. Athletes don't really want it. How can we reduce it by and large with a few yeah. exceptions, like psyching up for, uh, power sport, for example, but, um, but now, like I start even when I see 12 year old dancers to sort of talk about why do we have anxiety in the body and how it's a universal human thing. And OK, so the jury, are they saber toothed tigers or are they, you know, teetering on the top of Mount Everest? Why do we have the same experience uh, to, to really normalize it and make them see like this is going to happen? And to say, do you know, what? what do you feel when you're going on a really big roller coaster? Or when you're going into the haunted house or watching that scary movie or why do dancers put themselves on on stage or in dance assessments when they know they're going to be anxious? Well, because it's like, and it's an excitement reaction as well, right? It makes you feel more alive and on edge and it's a little bit unknown and and that's amazing. So they're part of the same thing. So there, I think, learning more tools than perhaps traditional sports psych. so CBT, but also mindfulness has been enormously helpful mm-hmm. um, and, and really nicely compatible with uh, dance practice and also with more somatic approaches that are. Um, common in dance, not least contemporary dance with regards to mindfulness, uh, being in the moment and, and breathing and so on. No, I'm not sure that answered your question.
1: No, all. absolutely. Uh, well, it, it, it answered our question.
2: It's um, <laughs> a <laughs> so long meander. No,
1: For um, if, if anybody who's listening who's interested in that sort of thing, uh, I did an episode back in Series 1 with uh, Dr. Josephine Perry and Joe Davies about anxiety and about exactly some of the things that you were talking about about how it's perhaps not necessarily a case of having to reduce or get rid of or, or run away from anxiety. Can we just embrace it as kind of part of the of the journey in exactly the way that you just so, so eloquently described? Um, Kit, I want to come to you for the final question. Um, and I, I've, I'm trying to ask this of all of the the performer guests on this series. And uh, if you reflect back on your, your career, you know, said in the introduction you had a a 20 plus year career uh, as a professional dancer what would you say you've
0: learned about yourself over the years can i how do i keep that clean for radio Um, (laughs) well i mean there's there's no watershed here you can say what you want um i um i think this is probably going to pull together lots of things that that we've spoken about I can um I can obsess about whatever it is that I am working on at that particular time whether that's um a particular role or if I'm choreographing a piece or if it's something something that's not work I play with the band for example so I obsess about that quite a lot as well um and the the positive side of that is, you know, I get, I get stuff done and, um, I'm, I'm quite productive. Uh, I've also learned that I mean, bizarrely alongside that I'm a huge procrastinator and, um, most of my productivity comes from being productive in something to put off doing something else. So, um, (laughs) so I, uh, I find this a lot with my studies right now. I've gone back into another block of statistics and, um, right now my house is very, very clean. I'm, um, <laughs> very on top of, um, of the bass parts that I have to play with the band. Um, <laughs> uh, I I've even done some Christmas shopping, you know, but, um, <laughs> but I'm somewhat, somewhat behind on my statistics. Um, for,
1: for the for the listeners uh, we're recording this in very early September just for context
0: <laughs> <laughs> um so I've learned about myself that I, I I will get stuff done but I could perhaps prioritize the things that 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 need to be done a little better um however I, what I would say is that I I do get them done um I was going this year to not study i was going to take a year out um because uh there's there's just been a lot going on the past couple of years professionally and personally we've had a, a a new director of our company which is great but it has precipitated a lot of change in the organization i'm also at the point where i'm um uh, accelerating towards career transition um and that that adds a lot to my plate it's not enough for me to just turn up at work and And do my job anymore there's a lot of supplementary stuff not least this degree that i'm working on so the the need for me to prioritize has um really come a lot more to the forefront in a way that i've never had to before so i'm learning that i'm also learning um this is turning into a little bit of therapy for me i apologize for that (laughs) Um, i'm also i'm also learning that um in dance terms, I'm, I'm kind of old. I turned 40 this year. um, And I think it's, it's really important to learn this, perhaps a little bit earlier in your career than that, that uh, as a physical performer, what you do after is going to be a longer, uh, hopefully a job or or employment, but it's going to be a longer part of your life. So Mm -hmm. I've been a dancer for 22 years, my next career, Assuming I'm going to retire well past sixty-five, as seems to be the pattern, um, mm. is going to be a much bigger part of my life. Mm. And it's really interesting um, when you're looking at a transition like that. That most, and I think this is common across um, across most uh, physical performance disciplines. That you will have trained really intensely for kind of ten years or so before you you get into that. Maybe some things, gymnastics, maybe a slightly earlier and. and other sports, maybe you, you peak slightly later, but um, you've trained for 10 years for probably a 15 to 20-year career. And then you expect to go into another career afterwards, which is longer. Um, and you perhaps haven't trained for that kind of similar period. Um, and I think it's something that we're constantly trying to, to encourage dancers to do, that post-career planning. Um, I did my choreography masters, which was great, and it's really helped my career. Um, but uh, a lot of that, the the actual skills and so on, are less transferable. Having a masters is wonderful, and it you know it's illustrative of of capability and so on. Um, but I find that the the stuff that I'm getting at in psychology is much more transferable, um, and I've learned that that process of um, of learning and of self development professional development self-improvement and and it's not gonna end (laughs) it's not gonna stop I'm not gonna get there and then cool that's what I'm gonna do every day now it's it's gonna keep going um is there anything I could talk for ages about what I've learned (laughs) is there anything specific you'd like me to an area no I
1: wasn't wasn't after anything I was just I was just curious that's all I've learned that
0: I'm still learning and I, I, I think I'm always going to and uh and a lot of the stuff that i've learned i'm later going to learn is wrong or has changed or needs to change i think
1: well i think that's that's probably as good a place as any to uh to wrap things up for today um so i just want to really thank you both uh tremendously for for the amount of time that you've given uh, given up to come on the podcast uh, I, I really genuinely appreciate it um uh, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you? So, uh, Sana, where can people get a hold of you?
2: Is just on Twitter? So that's at DancePsychSana.
1: Okay, awesome. And I, I can't let you go without at least a little plug for your new book.
2: Thank you. Yeah, so uh, Essentials of Dance Psychology came out on Human Kinetics uh, as an ebook uh, about a month ago and comes out in paper form at the end of October.
1: Okay, so we'll uh, we'll put links to uh, to your details and and to the uh, to the book in thank the you. episode description. But uh, thank you very much for for coming on eighty percent mental.
2: Thank you so much, lovely to be here.
1: And Kit, same thing. Where can people get a hold of you if they want to reach out or find out more about you?
0: Um, I am on Twitter. I'm not a prolific tweeter, um, <laughs> but I'm there at Kit Holder, um, and I I hope to continue working with Birmingham Royal Ballet. Uh, so. We have a website, brb.org.uk, where you can find out everything about the company and, and touring dates, performances, which shows we're doing.
1: Okay, fantastic. Well, again, we'll put uh, those details in the episode description. And uh, once again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I hope you all enjoyed this episode and the conversation with Dr. Sanna Norden-Bates and Kit Holder on the psychology of dance we covered a huge range of topics from the environment that dancers find themselves in, in training and in performance preparation. We talked about some of the mental challenges of dance, the threat of injury, recovery from injury and re-injury anxiety. We talked about perfectionism and finding perhaps other criteria for judging performance, and treading that fine line between perfectionism and perhaps obsession. I really enjoyed that conversation and I hope that you took something from it too. Don't forget you can leave a comment if you want to on the website 80percentmental.com where you can listen to all the other episodes that are available and subscribe to the podcast if you want to. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at EPM Podcast or on Instagram at 80percentmental. Metal? Mental. And don't forget to like, share, retweet, you know, all that good social media stuff. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. Although I won't see you because it's a podcast.